from Colorado Public Radio and PRX. This is On Something. The voters of Massachusetts should be very proud to put Massachusetts again at the forefront of a sweeping social movement in America. It was 2016, and Massachusetts voters had just narrowly approved legal recreational weed. It was a fitting homecoming for Sonia Erica, who had just moved back to Boston after a little over a year away from school. I needed to take time off because I needed space from Harvard as an institution that holds a lot of wealth, it holds a lot of privilege, and so... I needed a little break from that because I didn't come from wealth or from privilege. So I took the year off and I was super, super thankful because after taking that year off, I knew exactly what I wanted to do and I knew exactly how I wanted to dedicate my time. While she was away from school, she took on odd jobs, including selling weed to pay the bills. On the one hand, it helped her survive. And on the other hand, as an undocumented person, she could have faced deportation and possibly a lifetime ban for coming into contact with cannabis. That contradiction was one of the reasons she got involved with legalization. Legal weed happens because of the hard work of activists like Sonia. But she and many others were never just in it so that they could light up legally. They were there from day one because to them, legal weed was always a social justice issue. Her dreams were bigger than just dispensaries. Sonia dreamed of getting people out of prison, reuniting families, and getting those folks stable jobs and opportunities in the industry. Because not only did the voters say yes to legal weed, they said yes to a vision of it that would at least encourage participation from those most harmed by the war on drugs. Well, first... We were so excited. We had so much hope. Sonia would go on to co-found the Massachusetts Recreational Consumer Council with a handful of her friends. In a way, their mission was to hold the state to its promise, to get a seat at the table for black and brown people, for undocumented people, for people with criminal records from cannabis. But once Sonia got a seat at the table, she realized it wasn't a table so much as it was almost like getting a seat in coach. There were still other people in first class who had more influence, more privileges, and most importantly, a front row seat to the process. I remember one of these meetings, there was a woman who was part of that main table of decision makers who didn't even know what an edible was. It's like, why are you here? I should be sitting there. (laughs) We had so much hope. And over the course of time, our hope was unfortunately deflated. Deflated because she started to watch an industry take shape in Massachusetts that looked nothing at all like social justice. In fact, to her, it looked more like Wall Street than anything else. That was so frustrating because we were giving so much time, so much passion, so much, you know, love to legalization and helping it legalize the right way. And it just wasn't happening. And it was happening way too slow. 
Now, I first met Sonia back in 2019, when I first started making this show. And at that time, she told me cannabis legalization might be the last shot at achieving real societal fairness in her lifetime. I remember her telling me that at first, her passion was immigration reform. But as an immigrant herself, she started to feel like it was a lost cause. She felt like the economy was built already on the status quo, but that legalization would be a rare chance at creating a brand new economy with fairness hardwired into it from the get-go. But it's been almost five years since Massachusetts legalized, five years since the state was hailed as taking this big progressive step that didn't even pan out the way that it was supposed to. On the one hand, change takes time. Rome wasn't built in a day and all that. On the other hand, is time running out? Has the green rush already come and gone, and the only ones who benefited were the usual suspects? Rich, white guys? And what about the disproportionately impacted? The communities harmed by marijuana prohibition and enforcement? Is it too late for them to get a fair shake? This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. Welcome back to another season, where this time we're going to try something a little bit different. This season is all about the movement for social equity. Now, we've done stories about social equity laws on this show before. We've done stories about race before. But this time, we're looking at weed legalization as a sort of laboratory for fairness. If America can find a way to right the wrongs of the war on drugs, then maybe there is hope for all the other injustices we haven't figured out yet. We're calling this season Fair Shake, the pitfalls on the path to social equity. Before we get into the meat of the matter, we should probably talk about some key definitions and how they apply to the business of cannabis specifically. All right, so this is an easy one. Equality. It's the idea of each person getting an equal slice of pie. Boom, done. Equity is when each person gets only as much pie as they need. So you wouldn't give a slice to someone who is already full, but you might give two slices to someone who is famished. Social equity is that pie idea applied to our society. A socially equitable society would prioritize the needs of those whose need is greatest, right? The people who have never had any pie or who have had all of their pie taken from them. I like to call cannabis a gateway drug, uh, not a gateway to harder drug use, but a gateway into the criminal justice system for some of our most marginalized populations. This is University of Toronto professor Akwasi Owusu-Bempa. He's also the lead researcher for the Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty. My academic work focuses on inequality and criminal justice. Uh, you can't do that work without looking at drugs. As drugs are a major driver of inequality in the justice system, one that has been used uh, in many places and over many years uh, as a means of social control to target specific groups of people and, and bring them into the criminal justice system. And he says equitable cannabis legalization must account for that fact. Social equity for me in the world of cannabis uh, and cannabis legalization uh, really refers to three things. 
cannabis amnesty, inclusion in the legal industry, and reinvestment of cannabis profits. The first part of that, cannabis amnesty, is the clearing of records of those who have criminal convictions for marijuana-related crimes that are no longer illegal. We've talked about this before in the first season of our show. The second part is inclusion in the legal industry. So that's ensuring that the very people who were targeted uh, by the war on drugs and who have been disproportionately criminalized for cannabis and other drug-related crimes are provided an opportunity to benefit from the fruits of legalization. And then the third part of social equity in cannabis is reinvestment. We need to recognize that each year billions of dollars are spent policing a war on drugs. That's money going to police agencies, going to courts and going to corrections instead of to schools, to hospitals, community centers. And so I think that true uh, social equity and legal cannabis involves the reinvestment of a portion of cannabis revenue and cannabis tax revenue into those very communities. So think of those as three ways to redistribute the pie, so to speak, using legalization like a big knife to cut fair slices. For activists like Akwasi and Sonia Erica in Massachusetts, this was always the point. Like for us, it was always about equity. We started with equity. So when it came to the people who wanted in, Sonia was there. MRCC, the organization that she helped run, educated everyday people about how the law worked, coached them on what they needed to apply for a license, and lobbied the government on behalf of people harmed by the war on drugs. So, as you mentioned, at the time, you were undocumented. Can you talk to me about how it felt to campaign for something that you knew you weren't going to legally be able to participate in? I'm always a little brain behind the scenes um, because I, you know, well, not me, but... My parents are scared of my status, of our status. And I completely understand, you know, I'm their kid and they want me to be safe. And so I've always known that my place is behind the scenes. And Sonia says she flourished in the background, doing the nitty gritty organizing work, figuring out granular policy details, being the quiet backbone of the Massachusetts Recreational Consumer Council. And after the election, it felt natural to work with the state as one of a handful of organizations tasked with helping the program to succeed. And the hopes of the social equity program were that we would be the vendors that would help social equity applicants get to the finish line and get to the part where they launch their business. But Sonia says it was setback after setback after setback. It was worse than not knowing what an edible was. To her the program just wasn't being set up to succeed. The first mistake was that people who could be social equity applicants were only given two weeks to apply. Two weeks. And after those two weeks, the program closed the doors. This is paperwork that would realistically take anyone weeks Sonia's referring to a class of applicants who needed to demonstrate not only that they come from underprivileged areas, but that they plan to hire people from similar backgrounds. Sonia says on that kind of timeline, it wasn't set up for just any old person from the neighborhood to successfully get in. More likely than not, you got in if you knew about the program, you knew about the laws, if you knew that this was happening. And so the people who really got in weren't really the people that needed the help. 
it was people that were already in the industry in the lobbying world that were you know trying to get in and so seeing that really made us lose hope and we actually hosted like maybe three four sessions uh full of real social equity applicants that could actually benefit from the program like people people from the hood people that were not rich people that had actually had experience with incarceration experience with you know their families being separated because of prohibition of weed prohibition not only could she see these people getting left out but she could also see who was scooping up licenses instead she says the people who were doing the most to shape legal cannabis in Massachusetts weren't even in government. It was these big, multi-state cannabis companies. In her eyes, so long as those corporate behemoths wanted a piece of the action, they'd starve out everyone else. She started to think about leaving. Her co-founders at MRCC wanted to continue working with the state. She had seen the time and energy that that required and she felt like it was better spent elsewhere, like running their own workshops outside of the state program. And I was like, you know what? No, guys, let's focus on something else. Let's focus on something else outside of the government. Government isn't working. Government isn't going to give us our solution. She lost that argument. Over time, she started to step away from MRCC. Like, how are you feeling about how the industry is unfolding in Massachusetts. Like, how are you feeling about who gets to open stores? Angry, mad. I couldn't live with myself. I had to leave. I had hope when I had hope for Massachusetts. Like, if Massachusetts is able to legalize correctly, then it doesn't matter if it becomes federally legal because the little foundation for Massachusetts is already set up. Right. But now, I don't know. For Sonia, if the state could get it right in this small window of time, then there would already be an equitable foundation for when federal legalization came along. By then, the industry would already look how it should look. But all her hopes for Massachusetts had collided hard with harsh reality. There were simply too many powerful forces at work trying to shape the future. And she was just one little old person. Well... You know, I feel like I'm so jaded now. <laughs> I don't know. You only legalize once. After a quick break, we find out why Sonia's experience might feel like history repeating itself. Hey, it's Anne. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Listeners like you make On Something possible. Hundreds of thousands of people have listened to our podcast since it launched back in 2019. You've been there with us while we've explored everything from CBD to cooking with cannabis to social equity across the entire industry. It is really humbling and I am so grateful the reporting, the stories told, and the issues explored, you made all of that possible. And if you feel like helping our show, head to onsomething.org and contribute if you can. Once again, thank you so much. 
Welcome back. We last left off talking to one activist who was passionate about making legalization equitable in Massachusetts and eventually found herself burned out. Akwasi Awusu Bempa has been an activist for a long time, and he's seen burnout get the best of many. He's even suffered it himself. I think that we need to just uh, recognize our wins when we get them, no matter how small that they are, and recognize that, you know, oftentimes we engage in activism for reasons that are much bigger than ourselves, uh, and to remember that we're one kind of piece in a much larger puzzle and a much larger machine. And in the spirit of looking at the bigger picture, he says he feels a bit more optimistic about states like Massachusetts and their social equity laws, at least from where he's sitting in Toronto. So for me, I think it's you know extremely important that these social equity measures are included in whatever legislation is passed. And, and I say this largely based on the Canadian experience. So in Canada, we have federal legalization. We have now for a couple of years we're uh, lobbying and pushing very hard for the clearing of the criminal records, which unfortunately only came after there's very little conversation, although that's changing a little bit about inclusion in the industry. There's zero discussion about the reinvestment of a portion of tax revenue back into the communities harmed. Akwasi says perfecting something over time is hard, but it's not nearly as hard as building it from scratch. So, like I look at the, f- the first states to institute uh, good social equity measures really as ideal types, right? They provide these models for others to follow, but they also can be used to evaluate whether or not they've been effective and you've got something to strive towards. But even with something to strive towards, this larger effort for social equity is truly unprecedented in more ways than one. See, in the U.S., we don't have much of a track record for making laws that prioritize some type of government benefit for people who had previously been victimized by the government. We don't have many other social equity laws outside of cannabis to draw from. But it doesn't mean there aren't some other cautionary tales, like affirmative action. The policy was signed by President JFK in 1961, and originally just dealt with the hiring of federal contractors, specifically prohibiting racial discrimination in the hiring process. Six years later, JFK's successor, LBJ, would amend the order to prohibit gender discrimination as well. Including women then meant including them in every iteration of affirmative action after that, meaning a policy that had started out as race-based became colorblind. Over subsequent decades, the biggest winners of affirmative action would be white women. One 1995 study found that six million women, mostly white, simply wouldn't have had jobs were it not for affirmative action. Women of color made gains too, but by nowhere near as much. So thanks to a policy that originally intended to curb racial discrimination, white women found greater equity at work gaining a foothold in the workforce that far surpassed Black or Latina women. Colorblind laws never result in colorblind outcomes. We, we know that because there are a host of factors that influence individuals' life chances and characteristics that 
disadvantage them. And so when you institute race neutral policies or you try to be fair to everyone, the people who have advantages end up being advantaged by those laws. And of course, the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution prevents any law from explicitly targeting any racial group. So any policy has to walk this fine line between being colorblind enough to be legal and being targeted enough to be truly effective. I had to find a new space of hope because I just couldn't stand to see what was unfolding. It wasn't what I had envisioned. It wasn't what I had hoped for. When I first met Sonia Erica three years ago, I found her passion not only inspiring, but kind of contagious. So I have to admit that it's hard to hear that a fiery person like her got so badly burned trying to make the world a better place. But I can take comfort in the fact that Sonia had some really good news to share with us, too. I was formerly undocumented. I used to be an illegal alien. And during the pandemic, the most amazing thing happened and I was able to get my papers. We started this season with her story because I wanted to be completely upfront that this endeavor to make legalization equitable is truly difficult work. And it's passionate people who take up this work and give of their time, their energy, and as Sonia said in the very beginning, their love. But now she's also found some place else to channel that love. She stepped back from cannabis as a whole to focus her energy on helping people to start cooperatively owned businesses. She felt like she was watching the cannabis industry get carved up and portioned out among people who already had plenty of advantages. To her, corporations were taking over and co-ops were the solution. They are worker owned or producer owned. They are owned by the people. They are owned by the people that are putting in the labor. It's not just one person making most of the money like Jeff Bezos and Amazon. And it's people actively participating in democracy. And democracy is hard as F. All season, we'll be telling the stories of people who are pushing back against the status quo in an effort to make legalization more fair. And, uh... Speaking of corporations, on the next episode, we're going to stay parked in Massachusetts. In fact, we're going to delve a bit deeper into a story out of Boston. It's a cautionary tale about making the cannabis industry more equitable. Sadly, you know, you have folks who have different objectives and if their objective is only the bottom line. Yeah. Um, and I would submit, it, you know, anyone who's listening, in particular people of color who are listening uh, to this, the biggest lesson is... Be careful who you get in bed with. Join us next time for a David and Goliath story with a twist. On Something is a labor of love reported and written by me, Anne-Marie Awad. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Today's episode was produced by Luis Antonio Perez. Our editor is Dennis Funk. Find a list of all of the talented people who helped make this episode in the show notes. 
This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is also made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. I should have turned my camera off. You're not supposed to see the whole process whereby I get in and out of here. (laughs) Sorry.